Listener Production. Hey, Bensi on CBIT here and welcome to The Briefing. There's no early detection test for ovarian cancer. That means 70% of women and gender-diverse people diagnosed with it catch it late. That goes some way to explaining why more than half of the people who get ovarian cancer die within five years. Despite how deadly it can be, we don't hear a lot about ovarian cancer in Australia. That needs to change if we want to change those numbers. Briefing producer Simon Beaton joins me now. Simon, you have a personal connection to this story. Tell us about that. I do, Benson. So my mum was diagnosed with ovarian cancer less than six months ago, and it's been a really massive roller coaster. It is one where often the diagnosis does come late and it can be hard to find out information or even kind of know what the diagnosis and the prognosis is going to be and one that seems to be changing quite rapidly. Mm. I've obviously been researching so much about this and I have found that it is an underfunded and poorly understood cancer, not just for my mum's journey and one that I think needs more attention drawn to it. Absolutely. Well, thanks for sharing this with us, Simon. We'll bring you Simon's special deep dive into Australia's relationship with ovarian cancer in the second half of this episode. But first, let's get the news you need to know today with Antoinette Latouf. It's Wednesday, February 28th. Thanks, Bensian. G'day, everyone. A vigil has been held by the family and friends of Jesse Baird and Luke Davies, the two men who were allegedly murdered in Sydney last week. Dozens of loved ones gathered at Bronte Beach laying flowers beside a photograph. Some family members also made the pilgrimage south to the property in the New South Wales Southern Tablelands where the remains of the former Network 10 TV presenter and flight attendant were found in surfboard bags yesterday. New South Wales Senior Constable Bo Lamar Condon has been charged with two counts of murder, which police have alleged happened last Monday in the eastern Sydney suburb of Paddington. The state's police commissioner, Karen Webb, who's already under fire for quoting Taylor Swift during an interview on the matter, thanked the accused officer for providing information that helped track down the location. So, Bensian, this is obviously an incredibly tragic story, but it's been having flow-on effects. So now the Australian Federal Police have also said, so this is in addition to New South Wales Police, that they won't march in this year's Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. Mm. Uh, So that comes after the board of the parade requested New South Wales Police not march on Monday. And that's due to the distress it could cause following the deaths of Luke Davis and Jesse Baird. But it has also left many LGBTQI plus members of the force pretty disappointed that their identity and job are being forgotten amidst this tragedy. So yes, obviously this is utterly devastating for the victim's family and their friends, but it's also a bit of a reckoning for New South Wales police who just in the past week also apologised for its poor handling of gay hate crimes in the 70s and 80s. The federal government's stage three tax cuts have passed through parliament overnight, meaning tax cuts for millions of Aussies on lower and middle incomes. These tax cuts are aimed squarely at middle Australia. Understanding the cost of living pressure that low and middle income Australians are under. 
Prime Minister Anthony Albanese there. The changes mean tax cuts for 13.6 million taxpayers from July 1. Average earners on $73,000 would see their tax cut double to $1,504, Antoinette. And I've never really understood what that term Middle Australia means. Politicians love to use it. And, but it's important to note that there is a growing disparity between our richest and poorest. So whatever that Middle Australia is, is, is fast eroding. It's also, I think, important to point out that the original stage three tax cuts actually sought to flatten the tax system um, by abolishing a tax bracket and address bracket creep by pushing out the top tax bracket. So the new changes actually retain the tax bracket that would have been abolished, but they just adjust tax rates to benefit lower, but it's crucial to point out, also higher income earners. So this was obviously a big political risk for the PM, um, who has said many times since the last election, he would keep the original stage three tax cuts which were heavily skewed towards benefiting wealthier Australians. But he decided that giving everyone a tax cut and less of a tax cut to the top end of town would be more of a political winner. Yeah, and the latest news poll suggests that if an election was held today, the government would keep the same amount of seats. But Peter Dutton has been slowly chipping away at Albo's lead when people are asked who the better Prime Minister is or would be. It comes just days before the Dunkley by-election in Victoria, which is considered a crucial test for both the government and the opposition. Israel and Hamas have poured cold water on speculation a ceasefire in Gaza could happen this week. And that speculation came squarely from US President Joe Biden, who said this. My hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. But The Guardian is reporting Hamas said Biden's comments were premature and don't match the reality on the ground, while Israeli officials told Reuters the comments came as a surprise. So the latest proposal under review reportedly includes a 40-day pause in all military operations, that's during Ramadan, as well as the exchange of high-profile Palestinian prisoners for Israeli hostages at a ratio of 10 to 1. Hamas's leadership has said that it will not release hostages without a full Israeli withdrawal from the Gaza Strip. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says a temporary ceasefire would not stave off a potential ground offensive on Rafa, which is the southernmost town in Gaza, and that's become the last refuge for more than half of the population there. We actually managed to speak to a woman sheltering with her family in Rafa last week, so you can have a listen to that episode if you scroll through to your briefing feed to Thursday. So, Bensian, this discussion of a ceasefire comes after a first ceasefire and hostage release deal collapsed at the start of December. Hamas has repeatedly said it would release remaining hostages, but only if there's a permanent truce. Um, And of course, this all comes as the death toll in Gaza is likely to pass a really grim milestone of 30,000 this week. And there are hundreds of thousands who are starving with almost no access to aid and food. Uh, The death toll for Israelis remains around 1,300 and more than 100 journalists have been killed, almost all of them Palestinian. There is growing anger towards Netanyahu among Israelis who want the hostages returned and the violence to end. Um, Here in Australia, new polling shows the vast majority of Australians want an end to the violence. Victorians are being warned today is shaping up as the most dangerous fire day since the Black Summer fires of 2020. 
Extreme to catastrophic fire danger ratings are in place with scorching heat and strong winds forecast. At least 30,000 people in Victoria's west have been told to evacuate. At least six homes and dozens of sheds have been destroyed by an out-of-control bushfire burning in the area since last Thursday. South Australia is also set to deal with dangerous fire conditions. Melbourne itself is set to hit 37 degrees, while Adelaide is forecast to reach 34, with some parts inland expected to hit the 40s. Yeah, so relevant communities are urged to prepare and plan to evacuate. Also, of course, check in on elderly neighbours and relatives, and while you're at it, have a plan for pets and closely follow SES and fire updates. That's it for the headlines today. Thanks, Antoinette. Up next, our deep dive into ovarian cancer and why it's so overlooked in Australia. February has been Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month here in Australia, but chances are you might not have heard much about it. I certainly hadn't until my mum had her diagnosis. And after the journey that we've been on over the last five months and learning about the terrible statistics, the fact that on average over two and a half women will lose their lives in Australia each day to ovarian cancer, the late diagnosis, which is so common, and the 49% five-year survival rate, it's something that I very much feel the need to draw more attention to. Because compared to other cancers, there's just not the same level of public awareness. And to help me do so, I'm joined by Bridget Bradhurst from Ovarian Cancer Australia. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. Bridget, why don't we care about ovarian cancer? We do care about it when we learn about it, which is exactly your experience. So for a lot of people in our community, when they receive a diagnosis of ovarian cancer, they're shocked because it's never been on their radar. They have to go onto Google. They know nothing about it. And I think that's partly because it's a rarer cancer. So there aren't as many people around with ovarian cancer as, say, breast or prostate cancer. But I also think as a society with women's health issues and gynae issues, we're not as comfortable talking about it. And our women just aren't living as long as they should be to be spreading the word about this disease. So we do have a really passionate community of people um, who want to see change in this when they learn about it, but we need to make, raise more awareness in the Australian community. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, like I, I know what to keep an eye out for uh, skin cancer and likewise with prostate or breast cancer, we all kind of know what to look for, but there isn't really a screening test at all for ovarian cancer, is there? Unfortunately not. And as well as a lack of early detection tests, symptoms are also vague and they often don't present until the disease is more advanced. So women might be experiencing things like abdominal bloating, fatigue, maybe a change in appetite, um, maybe some changes to their bowel and urinary habits, but really sort of vague symptoms that they will often experience with other conditions as well. So it makes it really challenging to find this disease and find it early. And I think, you know, if you're having conversations with loved ones and you're a bit worried about a mole on your arm or a lump on your breast, as you say, they'll push you to go and get it checked out. Whereas if women are having a conversation with each other about some tiredness and bloating, ovarian cancer is the last thing on their mind. So it is really tricky. Is this also kind of one of the reasons why when ovarian cancer is detected, it is often at a later stage than for others? That's right. It's not an area of the body that we can see. And these vague symptoms will only often start after the disease has been growing for some time. So 
unfortunately, just being aware of symptoms in and of itself hasn't worked as a way of early detection with ovarian cancer. So until we get a better method of effective screening, most women are diagnosed in the advanced stages, which makes it more difficult to treat. I'd like to talk a bit about uh, patient outcomes. So where are we? Have things improved for patients than, say, 20 to 30 years ago? Look, things have improved a bit, albeit too slowly. So unfortunately for ovarian cancer, we still have a five-year survival rate of 49%. And to put that into some context, breast cancer now has a five-year survival rate of 92%. So we can see when we have screening methods, effective treatments and investment in research, what difference it can make. So whilst we are seeing some new medicines coming from ovarian cancer and new developments, they are too slow and the survival rate has been really reluctant to budge very much at all. So until we can see increased investment and increased awareness of this disease, we're worried that that progress will still be slow. Do we not want to fund ovarian cancer research because it's not sexy? Is is breast cancer cooler than ovarian cancer to donate to? Well, I think historically more of the Australian community have known someone with breast cancer. We've had well-known people uh, with breast cancer to raise awareness and make noise about this disease. And as you say, there's a real reluctance to engage in gynae issues. So I think that's been hard as a less common cancer with poor survival outcomes. We haven't had well-known people living long enough to really stand up and, and make noise about this disease. So to be honest too, it's just a trickier disease to treat. It's really complex. There are a lot of different subtypes. It's resistant to treatments. It is really challenging, but we've seen in examples like breast cancer where research dollars can lead. So we're hopeful that if we see that investment, we will improve outcomes. You know, I I had a look into the funding and on the plus side, from 2003 to 2020, direct funding rose from 2.2 million to uh, over 30 million. But as a comparison, if we look once again at breast cancer funding in 2018 to 2020, direct funding was over $91 million. And back in 2003, they were getting just $33 million. Are we getting enough funding? I don't think we are. And look, we're so thrilled to see what's happened in breast cancer. We don't begrudge that at all. But what we're saying is, look at what we can do. We've seen it in this disease and it's ovarian cancer's time. You know, women often describe that they feel like they've been diagnosed with the wrong cancer for that reason. The public aren't aware, the survival rates are worse, the treatment options aren't there. So I think it's going, it was breast cancer's time and other cancers' time. And we really don't want to put cancer against cancer. What we're saying is that to shift the survival rate for ovarian cancer and to change the landscape for future women diagnosed, we must take it seriously and increase our investment in this disease. Well, is is that the crunch point? Does more funding inherently mean a better outcome? I think it does because really cancer outcomes are changed from the point of diagnosis when you can find them early through to effective treatments and understanding the disease. And some of the exciting developments in ovarian cancer recently have been because we've had a more personalised approach and that's thanks to so much research in that space. So instead of treating every woman with ovarian cancer the same now, we have a look at their disease and say, what's going on for you and what's the best treatment for you? Now, we wouldn't be where we are now without research. So we're hopeful in the next few years we'll see that survival rate start to creep up with these changes in how we approach treatment, but we do need more for sure. 
And what do you think is the most essential part? Is it kind of being able to diagnose it earlier and maybe getting some sort of screening test, however that looks, to, to help? Or is it in being able to treat it better to improve the prognosis? I think we have to hold both those things together, particularly with something like ovarian cancer. So there was a big study in the UK over many decades, and those results have just come out in the last few years. And there were some cases of ovarian cancer that they detected earlier, but those people didn't have improved outcomes because this disease is so nasty and so complex. So we definitely need early detection, and that will be a great way to save lives for many women. But we also need to understand why this disease is resistant to existing treatments and how we can overcome that resistance for those people for whom early detection isn't enough to to find this disease and treat it. So we do need investment in both early detection and treatment. And Bridget, one last question. What's one thing that you want anyone listening now to know about ovarian cancer? Oh, thank you for asking that, Simon. We would love people around Australia to hear this conversation and, and talk to their loved ones about their risk of cancer in the family. So without an early detection method, one tool that we do have is to talk about our family history of cancer with each other to understand our risk. So 20% of ovarian cancers are hereditary. So there's still a lot where risk isn't enough, but we do want to capture those families for whom there might be some action they can take if they're at higher risk for ovarian cancer. And we'd love you to get behind organisations such as ourselves. So today is our annual giving day where donations are doubled. So if people would like to go to our website and find out more, we'd love that support. And the last thing to say, Simon, is that we have a free helpline staffed by ovarian cancer nurses. So if people are hearing this conversation today and they're a bit concerned about their own health or the health of a loved one, we really encourage them to reach out and talk to one of our team who can let them know the next steps they can take. And that's one 334 That was one of our producers here at The Briefing, Simon Beaton, speaking with Bridget Bradhurst from Ovarian Cancer Australia. And if you missed that phone number, it's 1300 664 or you can head to ovariancancer.net.au. Also, being the last day of their awareness campaign, every dollar that's donated will be doubled. Once again, head to that website if you'd like to get involved. That's it for this morning's briefing. Simon and I will be back this afternoon with the second part of his special deep dive into ovarian cancer in Australia. That episode will be in your feed from three. I'm Ben Sion Siebert. Thanks for listening. Listener.